Hello, and welcome back to Assassinations Podcast. Today's episode marks the end of the second season of our show. Over the past three and a half months, we've explored the realm of spies by looking at espionage-related assassinations and assassination attempts from all over the world. We investigated seven different cases that took us on a tour of Russia, Bulgaria, China, Egypt, the United States, Britain, and more. We've heard some questionable claims regarding methods of assassination that wouldn't seem out of place in a Bond movie, of poisoned pellets, an umbrella gun, and neurotoxin in a perfume bottle. We've heard an outlandish story of a drunken KGB assassin sharing a bottle of vodka with his intended victim, come across two spies who, between them, shaped the course of history in the Middle East, and witnessed the onset of what seems like a new Cold War between Russia and the West. We've also heard of real, personal tragedies, of a young Chinese resistance fighter who sacrificed her life for her country, of innocent bystanders caught up in the deadly world of espionage, and, for that matter, of the sadness that often fills the lives of many spies themselves. It's been quite a ride, but we're not done just yet. This week, we're revisiting the case of Alexander Litvinenko, a Russian man who was a prominent critic of the government of Vladimir Putin, as well as being a British intelligence agent. Litvinenko was apparently poisoned with a radioactive element called polonium-210. The British government accused the Russians of assassinating him, and they issued an arrest warrant for an associate of Litvinenko who had been with him just before he fell ill, a man named Andrei Lugovoy. We looked into this case a few weeks ago in a two-part episode, but I've got some additional evidence that I think we really need to examine. So, let's take one final look before closing the book. So, why an unexpected part three? After I completed that previous two-part episode, I realised that something wasn't right. I'd made an error by saying that Litvinenko had left his home in London on the morning of November 1st, 2006, and then met with two Russian men before going on to meet an Italian man for lunch. Looking at things more closely, it appeared that this isn't the right order. Litvinenko met the Italian, Mario Scaramella, first. They had lunch at a Japanese restaurant. Immediately after that, Litvinenko went to meet two Russians, Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovtun, at a hotel a few minutes' walk away. However, the more I tried to iron out the timeline, the more confused I grew. There were just a number of things about Litvinenko's movements that day that didn't quite add up. To be fair, it is a very complex case. The investigation into Litvinenko's death has been an extraordinarily drawn-out affair. There is not, to this day, a legal finding as to whether or not he was unlawfully killed, let alone a trial, 
or a conviction of anyone who might have been involved. Over the last decade, there have been so many newspaper reports on the case, many of which are contradictory or speculative or just plain wrong. And Litvinenko himself changed his story several times in the three weeks between his apparent poisoning on November 1st, 2006, and his death on the 23rd of that month. He gave different accounts to different journalists, leaving out or adding in seemingly vital details of what might have happened to him. In fact, over a period of 17 days after he fell ill, Litvinenko completely changed his story, at first suggesting that Scaramella had poisoned him, before shifting the blame onto Lugovoy and Kovtun. It wasn't until 2016 that a British inquiry came up with anything approaching a summary of the evidence. Now, I'd already used the information from this inquiry in preparation for the first two parts of the episode. I always try to base my work, as much as possible, on original documentation such as this. But it seemed I'd missed some important details. So, I decided that I had to go deeper into the findings of this inquiry in order to make sense of things. And that's why we're here, revisiting the Litvinenko case as our last episode of Season 2. Oh, by the way, we're going to take a two-week break while we prepare for Season 3 of the show, which will focus on the topic of journalists. But fear not if you're worried about missing out on your Assassinations podcast fix. During our two weeks off, we'll be actively posting on Twitter. We'll look at current events and share updates about our upcoming season. Fly in and say hello. We'll also have a bonus episode next Monday for our Patreon supporters, where we'll summarise this past season as a whole and try and draw some larger conclusions. That episode will be available to all of our Patreon supporters who pledge $1 or more per month. Find our Patreon page at patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast. Speaking of Patreon, we'd like to take this opportunity to say a great big thank you to our supporters. You all help us keep the lights on, so we don't want to end this season without giving everyone a quick thank you. Thanks to Ronnie, Megan, Ada, W. Westbrook, Craig, Thomas, Kelro, and Bob. Extra special thanks to Tina, Nicole, Dan, Tim, Lindsay, and Carla. Mega thanks to Barbara. And a whopping great thank you to Andrew. And now, let's dive back into the case of Alexander Litvinenko and the Polonium Plot. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. 
I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. Full disclosure here, I've still not read the entirety of the Litvinenko Inquiry. It must be thousands of pages long when all the witness statements, expert opinions, medical reports, forensic reports, written submissions, receipts, records, as well as the chairman's report, are all taken into account. Then there's CCTV footage and cell phone records to boot. It would take ten me's a couple of months to get through all of it and, what is more, critically assess everything. But there's only one me. I have had help looking into the case, but it's just a really big job. I've done my best though. I've gone deep, trying to focus on the most essential aspects of the investigation, especially as they pertain to Litvinenko's movements on November 1st. In so doing, I have found that the timeline of events on that day is still far from clear-cut. The commonly accepted view that Litvinenko was deliberately poisoned in the bar of the Millennium Hotel by Lugovoy and Kovtun is, I now believe... (laughs) Well, you'll just have to keep listening and I'll let you know. But before we do so, let's ask a question. What can we say about the British Inquiry set up in 2015 and issuing its report the following year that looked into the death of Alexander Litvinenko? Well, firstly we must consider the very nature of the inquiry. This was not an inquest. It was not a coroner's court. A coroner's inquest had been convened years earlier, but it was canned due to the fact that the government refused to release evidence pertaining to Litvinenko's relationship with British intelligence. A coroner cannot hear evidence in secret. Therefore, there was never any chance of establishing whether or not Litvinenko was unlawfully killed. Instead, the British government established what is called a statutory inquiry. There have been quite a few of these inquiries in Britain in recent years, looking into everything from the lead-up to the Iraq War to British operations in Northern Ireland during the civil conflict there. These inquiries are designed to allow the executive of the British government to keep what it wishes to remain a secret, secret. Therefore, any evidence in the case of Litvinenko that implicated the British intelligence services could be a withheld by the government, b. given in secret, or c. given in public, but so heavily redacted as to be virtually worthless to us mere mortals. In short, the Litvinenko inquiry was what we might call a pseudo-legal hearing. None of the evidence heard by the inquiry was subject to the sort of scrutiny and disputation that would occur in a courtroom. Now, that's not to say that the findings of the inquiry are all wrong, nor is it to say that all of the evidence presented in the inquiry is fishy, but it is all rather problematic. What do we do with statements from key witnesses that are almost completely redacted? What can we say about Litvinenko's activities, 
when the nature of his work with British intelligence at that time is blocked from public view on national security grounds. How do we deal with evidence that doesn't mesh together, but was never subjected to critical examination at the time it was presented? These are certainly challenges, but who said investigating the assassination of spies was going to be easy? Okay, let's go back in time to 2006. Litvinenko first got sick on November 1st. We're going to go through a timeline of that day. Oh, just a quick thing. I'm going to put a map on our website, assassinationspodcast.com. It'll show key places in London that I'm going to mention. It might be of some help. But I'll try to keep the geography as straightforward as possible as I'm telling the story. I'm basing this timeline upon the evidence given at the inquiry. Now, there are inconsistencies in this evidence, which I will point out as we go along. Now, it's been a few weeks since we last heard about this case, so let's just remind ourselves of the key characters. We have Alexander Litvinenko, a former Russian security officer, now working in private security, as well as for British intelligence. Andrei Lugovoy, a long-time acquaintance of Litvinenko, also in the private security business. He's an ex-KGB bodyguard. Dmitry Kovtun, an associate of Lugovoy, also an ex-KGB bodyguard. Mario Scaramella, an Italian conman and self-described nuclear expert who worked with Litvinenko. Boris Berezovsky, a Russian billionaire. He had once been an ally of Vladimir Putin, but living in London, he had become a highly outspoken critic of the Russian president. He had employed both Litvinenko and Lugovoy. Dean Atiu, the chief executive of Titan Security, a subsidiary of a company called Irenis International. Okay, now we have the featured players. So, let's get into the plot. Litvinenko had met with Andrei Logovoy several times in October 2006. Dmitry Kovtun had been present at one of these meetings. It seems that Litvinenko was exposed to a low level of polonium radiation at one or more of these meetings. Polonium was later found in a sample of Litvinenko's hair, which showed that he'd been exposed to a non-lethal dose at some point in October. In addition, traces of polonium were detected at various places where they'd met. Litvinenko and Lugovoy had known each other in Moscow back in the 1990s, when they'd both worked for Boris Berezovsky. They established a working relationship, again through their mutual connection with Berezovsky, after Litvinenko fled Russia for Britain in 2000. Lugovoy often travelled to the UK, and they worked together on and off for several years in London. According to people who knew them, they seemed to have a good rapport. The last time they met in October was at the Sheraton Hotel in Mayfair, London, on the evening of the 27th. They sat in the hotel bar and ordered a pot of tea. Litvinenko wasn't much of a drinker. I'm going to drop a little nugget here. 
a little clue that is very important for our story. Pay attention. The teapot at the Sheraton Hotel was silver. Okay, got that? Right, moving on. The two men were working together on various jobs in the murky world of Russian-British private security. Perhaps unbeknownst to Logovoy, British intelligence was using Litvinenko to surveil him, as well as Kovtun, Boris Berezovsky, and possibly others. Quite why the British were spying on these Russians remains unclear. Exactly what Litvinenko's role was, similarly, it's a bit of a mystery. What risks he might have been taking while carrying out this work on behalf of British intelligence? That's not clear either, but I think it's fair to say that this was a very dangerous world. Anyway, back to Litvinenko and Lugovoy in the bar at the Sheraton. The two men talked for a while. They parted ways. They would see each other again in a few days, when Lugovoy would return to London, this time with his family, to watch a soccer game between CSKA Moscow and Arsenal Football Club. Now, let's fast forward to the afternoon of October 31st. At 4.30pm, Litvinenko went to the offices of Titan Security. This office is located at 25 Grosvenor Street, also in Mayfair. Litvinenko wished to speak with Dean Atiu, with whom he'd worked dozens of times over the previous six months. They had a special relationship. Litvinenko worked for British intelligence, but apparently the British Treasury didn't put much value on his work. According to his wife, he was paid around £20,000 per year for his services. That's not much money in London. So the Brits had thrown him a bone. According to the evidence Atiu gave to the inquiry, Litvinenko was referred to him by someone from one of the spy agencies. Atiu gave him odd jobs, compiling intelligence reports. Litvinenko was not making great money for this either, but it must have helped. That afternoon, Atiu was in the middle of another unrelated meeting, and he asked if Litvinenko could maybe come back later. They made plans to meet the following afternoon, November 1st, at 2pm. At this point, Litvinenko also mentioned that Andrei Lugovoy was coming into town. Atiu had met Lugovoy previously. He did not like him, and had no interest in working with him at Titan Security. However, Lugovoy had worked with the parent company, Irinus International, which was based at the same address. During one of his trips to London in October, he'd attended a meeting there. Following the death of Litvinenko, British authorities tested the offices at 25 Grosvenor Street for Polonium-210. They found a high level in one of the rooms used by Irinus International. At almost the same moment that Litvinenko walked out of Dean Atchew's office, Lugovoy, with his wife and children, checked in to the Millennium Hotel. The hotel is located just a few hundred feet west along Grosvenor Street. According to Litvinenko's travel card records, he boarded a train at Oxford Circus Tube Station at 6.54pm that evening. 
Oxford Circus is only about a 10 minute walk from Grosvenor Street. It's unclear what Litvinenko did during the roughly two hour period between leaving Dinatiu and boarding the train. I've seen nothing in the CCTV or cell phone records to indicate who Litvinenko might have talked to or where he might have gone. I do not know if he walked across Grosvenor Street to meet with Lugovoy. It would be unsurprising if he had done so, given that they had already made arrangements to speak and were at that moment a stone's throw away from each other. But this is pure speculation on my part. The following day, at around 10 o'clock in the morning of November 1st, Litvinenko received a phone call from Mario Scaramella. They already had plans to meet later in the month of November, but Scaramella now said that it was very important that they met that afternoon. Litvinenko said he already had plans, but he'd be free by 3pm. He suggested they meet at Piccadilly Circus, a busy transport hub south of Mayfair. This was a location where they'd previously rendezvoused. Litvinenko and Lugovoy also spoke on the phone that morning, apparently to make plans to meet. Litvinenko left his home in North London and travelled into the city centre by public transport. He arrived at Oxford Circus around 1.30pm. He was spotted on a closed circuit camera on Grosvenor Street just before 2pm. This was him going to his meeting with Atiu. At this same moment, Lugovoy and Covton were directly across the road at an office at 58 Grosvenor Street. At 2.29pm, Litvinenko was caught on CCTV walking east on Grosvenor Street towards a thoroughfare called New Bond Street. This street runs north-south, perpendicular to Grosvenor Street. The CCTV footage shows him turning left on the corner of Grosvenor Street. This means that Litvinenko was travelling northwards on New Bond Street. However, at 2.30pm, CCTV footage from another camera appears to show Litvinenko walking south on New Bond Street, on the other side of Grosvenor Street. This footage actually has a timestamp of 3.30pm. However, the police have corrected the time. The clocks had gone back a few days before, and they claimed that the timer on the camera had not been adjusted accordingly. Here we come across the first of many glaring problems with the CCTV footage presented to the inquiry. Even if we accept that the police were correct to assume that the timestamp was merely out of sync by an hour, I'm not sure it's possible for Litvinenko to have turned northwards on New Bond Street at 2.29pm, only to be seen on the other side of Grosvenor Street, walking south one minute later. Nor can I fathom why Litvinenko would do this. He was totally familiar with the neighbourhood. He'd been to Dean Atiu's office scores of times, and he knew perfectly well which way was north or south. I cannot account for this discrepancy one way or the other, yet it is there. Adding a little more mystery, 
The cell phone records show that Litvinenko and Olga Voy spoke to each other on the phone for 8 seconds at 2.32pm. Given that they were at this moment within spitting distance of each other, could it be that this brief call was to say, hey, I'm here? This is speculation, but they could easily have met for 10 or 15 minutes and still have left Litvinenko plenty of time to hoof it down to Piccadilly Circus for 3pm. Giving evidence to the police, Litvinenko stated that he walked briskly in order to get to his meeting with Scaramella at Piccadilly Circus, which is about a 13 minute walk from Grosvenor Street. According to Litvinenko, he arrived there early. He decided to kill some time by going to the nearby St James's Market, which is about three minutes south of Piccadilly Circus. He said that he chatted with a man he knew, a Belarusian student who ran a bookstall at the market. This bookseller gave evidence to police shortly after the death of Litvinenko, which was later submitted to the inquiry. He couldn't quite recall if Litvinenko had come to his stall on the afternoon of November 1st, but he did recall that he'd seen Litvinenko at some point in late October or early November. Litvinenko said that he spent about 15 minutes chatting at the stall. The bookseller stated that the last time he'd spoken to him, it had been for around 15 minutes. Litvinenko stated that he then left for his 3pm rendezvous at Piccadilly Circus. He claimed that Scaramella was about 10 minutes late. Scaramella gives a slightly different account, saying that he arrived on time and that it was Litvinenko who was 10 minutes late. Either way, after a brief greeting, the two men agreed to go somewhere to talk. They both stated that they walked to the Itsu Japanese restaurant which is located about 7 minutes from Piccadilly Circus. This was one of Litvinenko's favourite places to have lunch in the city. He'd eaten there a couple of times a couple of weeks earlier with Andrei Lugovoy. And yes, radioactive polonium was later discovered at the Itsu restaurant, though it's not clear whether it got there during Litvinenko's meeting with Lugovoy or his meeting with Scaramella. Now, we must return to CCTV footage submitted to the inquiry, and again, we have some major issues with the timestamps. One camera shows two men fitting the appearance of Litvinenko and Scaramella walking westwards, from Piccadilly Circus towards the restaurant. The timestamp shows 10 minutes past 3, which seems to confirm that the men had met just after 3pm. However, another CCTV camera in the same area records them being there at 4.40pm. Police corrected this time, stating that the timestamp was 1 hour and 29 minutes fast, i.e. they're saying that the real time was 11 minutes past 3. A third camera seems to show Litvinenko and Scaramella entering the Itsu restaurant. The timestamp shows 3.24pm. But weirdly, the police said that this timestamp was 21 minutes fast. That means the cops are saying the actual time was 3.03pm. But how is that possible? 
How can Litvinenko and Scaramella be at Piccadilly Circus around 10 past 3, then be walking westwards towards Itsu at 3.11pm, only to arrive at the restaurant at 3.03pm? Something has to give, right? Well, you might think it must be a simple error by the police. They thought the camera facing Itsu was 21 minutes fast, but maybe it was only 10 minutes. But it's not as simple as that, because the camera that caught them entering the restaurant is also the camera that shows them leaving. And in order for the entire course of subsequent events to make sense, that camera has to be said to have been 21 minutes fast. The timestamp on that camera records Litvinenko and Skaramela exiting Itsu at 1 minute past 4. With the 21 minutes adjustment, the police now have the two men leaving at 3.40pm. This revision is absolutely vital to the investigation, but it is also a fundamental flaw. We shall come back to that after a quick break. We'll be right back. Since this is our final episode of the season, we thought it might be nice to bring you a recommendation for a show that we've currently been enjoying. If you're looking for something to get you through the next two weeks while Assassinations Podcast will be dark, check out Historical Blindness. They just wrapped up a three-part look at the assassination of Martin Luther King, and it's definitely worth a listen. Here's a promo for their show. Mysteries, hoaxes, conspiracy, topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But stories like these, fraught with ambiguities, teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts and most podcast apps. Now, back to the show. In order to confirm Litvinenko's movements from the Japanese restaurant to the Millennium Hotel, he has to have left Itsu at 20 minutes to 3. This is because the official investigation now relies on CCTV footage that shows Litvinenko outside the Millennium Hotel at 3.50pm, and the hotel is a 10 minute walk from the restaurant. But in order to establish that, he must have entered the restaurant at 3 minutes past 3. And that is not possible, unless either all the previous CCTV footage, as well as the witness statements of both Litvinenko and Skaramella, are all wrong. Or the subsequent timeline is incorrect. We just can't have it both ways. The footage of Litvinenko and Skaramella entering and leaving the Itsu restaurant is a fulcrum upon which the evidence simply cannot balance. Though it has been a highly convoluted, indeed a most fanciful route, we now find ourselves at the Millennium Hotel. This is the scene of the crime, so to speak, 
the place where Litvinenko was allegedly given a fatal dose of the radionuclide polonium-210. We do not see him enter the hotel. There are two brief glimpses of someone who might very well be Litvinenko captured in security camera footage from the hotel lobby, timestamped between 3.57 and 3.59pm. We see this person pass through the lobby, but we really don't know where he's come from or where he goes. We do not see him going into the bar, and there are no cameras in the bar. In fact, we will not see him again inside the hotel, and we won't see him leaving the hotel either. So for now, we will set aside the CCTV tapes and turn to good old eyewitness testimony. As he lay in his hospital bed, in great discomfort and heavily medicated, Litvinenko recalled the events of November 1st. He described the scene in the bar thusly. He is greeted by Andrei Lugovoy. Lugovoy shows him to a table. On the table are a few glasses, a pot of tea, and a few cups. The two men sit down. Lugovoy asks him if he would like a drink from the bar. He declines this offer. He says he doesn't want to pay the inflated price of a drink at a hotel bar in Mayfair, and he doesn't want Lugovoy to stand him around. Lugovoy then says he's welcome to help himself to a cup of tea. As he's a little thirsty, he says he'll drink some tea, so Lugovoy asks the waiter to get a clean cup. The waiter comes back with a cup. There's hardly any tea left in the ornate silver teapot. He can only half fill his cup. But the tea is cool, and there's no honey to sweeten it, so he only takes a few sips. The men talk for a few minutes about their plan to meet the following day with a security company. Another Russian man comes into the bar to join them. This man Litvinenko calls Vadim, or Vadia. The meeting is a mere 15 minutes long. It must be quick because Lugovoy and his family are going to the football match that evening. Before he goes, Lugovoy says he would like to introduce Litvinenko to his wife and eight-year-old son, Igor. Lugovoy brings his family over to the table, does the introductions, little Igor shakes his hand. And that's pretty much that. Here endeth Litvinenko's account of their meeting. There are three things of which we should take careful note. Understandably, British detectives questioned Litvinenko carefully about the tea he said he'd consumed. They specifically asked if Lugovoy had been insistent about him taking a cup of tea. In response, Litvinenko clearly stated that Lugovoy seemed indifferent as to whether or not he drank the tea. Another thing to pay close attention to, Litvinenko does not say that Dmitry Kovtun was in the bar. The other Russian he repeatedly referred to is Vadim. It's not clear who this Vadim might be, but it doesn't line up with anyone staying at the hotel. Thirdly, Litvinenko distinctly recollected, during two of his interviews with the police, that the teapot was silver. He described it as being very fancy-looking, very expensive. But this is not true. 
The teapot, like all the crockery used in the bar, was very simple white china. The entire bar and all the small wares were examined for traces of polonium. One teapot in particular was identified as having a high concentration, despite it having been washed and reused multiple times since November 1st. And this was a basic white teapot. Now, how to account for these inconsistent details? Well, of course we must bear in mind that Litvinenko was extremely unwell when he gave his version of events to the British police. During many hours of interviews in his hospital room between the 18th and the 22nd of November, he often seemed confused. He was dying a slow and horrible death from radiation poisoning, so we must understand there is a good chance that he made errors in his recollection of events. Was Litvinenko, drugged to dull the pain, conflating his meeting with Lugovoy in the bar of the Sheraton Hotel on October 27th, where he did have tea from a silver pot, with his meeting on the afternoon of November 1st? Was he thinking about a different meeting when he talked about this Vadim person? To me, under the circumstances, this seems likely. And that indicates that we really must take his entire testimony with a good dose of salt. There are so many parts of the story that don't seem to make sense. Would Lugovoy and or Kovtun spike the pot of tea with polonium only for Lugovoy to offer to buy Litvinenko a drink from the bar? Did they merely hope that Litvinenko would say no to this offer? Did they bank on him choosing instead to content himself with a couple of sips of cold tea instead of a fresh drink? Did Lugovoy administer a deadly dose of radioactive polonium-210 and then invite his own family over to the table to meet Litvinenko? Not only that, but have his eight-year-old son Igor come over to shake Litvinenko's hand. Did Kovtun and Lugovoy, with his family, then choose to remain in the hotel, a massively contaminated crime scene, for a further two days? These are challenging questions. We do not have the witness statements from Lugovoy or Kovtun. I say we don't have them, but statements were submitted to the inquiry. They are almost completely redacted. I mean, it's like, interview begins, blank, interview ends. These documents are useless to us as evidence, but the redaction of their witness statements does prove something in the negative, that the British government, for whatever reasons, wants to keep a lid on what Lugovoy and Kovtun had to say about what went down that day. Over the years, both men have spoken publicly about the events of November 1st, 2006, but only in rather vague terms, so we really don't know their side of the story. And so we turn to the only other witness from inside the bar that afternoon. The manager of the Pine Bar in the Millennium Hotel was a man named Norberto Andrade. A few months after the death of Litvinenko, Mr Andrade was contacted by journalists from several British newspapers all looking for a scoop. The Daily Telegraph newspaper published a sensational account of events 
apparently based on statements he made. According to this account, he said that the Russian suspects had behaved in an unfriendly manner and had created a distraction in order to spray poison into the pot of tea. The Telegraph also reported that Andrade claimed that the tea looked thick, gooey, and had a vivid yellow colour when he later emptied the pot. But in the evidence he gave to the inquiry in 2015, Mr Andrade stated that the Daily Telegraph had misrepresented him. He said that he was under a lot of stress at the time, inundated with calls from the media, that his family was being harassed, and that there had been a misunderstanding, perhaps compounded by the fact that English is not his native language. The talk about distractions, unfriendliness, poison spray and gloopy tea, was it all fake news? Andrade told the inquiry that he had been the bar manager at the hotel since 1981. It was his habit to greet customers as they entered the bar and to personally serve them at their tables. He stated that he preferred to work this way because he knew many of the customers well. Meanwhile, a barman would prepare the drinks. According to Andrade, a man he recognised as Andre Lugovoy came into the bar on the afternoon of the 1st of November. Andrade did not recall specific times when any of the following events took place. He greeted him as he entered, and Lugovoy ordered a cigar. Lugovoy indicated that he would come back to the bar later, at which time he and his party would order drinks. Andrade gave him the cigar, however he did not at that time open a cheque or bill for Lugovoy. Andrade said it was his habit not to input an order into the point of sale system until all the expected guests were seated. He merely kept a mental note that Lugovoy had ordered a cigar. Andrade recalled that it was about 30 minutes before Lugovoy returned to the bar with two other men. He said that the bar was very busy that afternoon. There were a lot of Russians staying at the hotel, including several people whom Lugovoy knew, because of the big football match between CSKA and Arsenal, and he was serving other customers when they came in and sat themselves at a table. Spotting them, Andrade quickly went over and took their order, which was three cups of green tea with lemon and honey. Andrade stated that he passed this order to the barman to prepare while he served other customers. When the tea was ready, he brought it over. The tea was priced by the cup in the bar, however Andrade brought them a pot of tea with three cups, which he said was the normal procedure. He described this teapot, like the other teapots used in the bar, as being made of white china. Andrade recalled that the three men asked for extra honey, which he brought over. A couple of minutes later, the Russians signalled for him to come back to their table. They ordered three gin and tonics. He recalled that shortly after this, they ordered again, this time a champagne cocktail and another gin. Andrade said that he opened their cheque or bill after they had received their drinks. He specified that there were three men sitting at the table when he brought out the drinks, and three men there when he inputted their order into the bar's point-of-sale system. 
He told the inquiry that he had used the ID card of a different member of staff when he entered this transaction, as he had misplaced his own ID card. This can be seen on the bar receipt, which was submitted as evidence to the inquiry. That receipt shows the tab being opened at 4.33pm, and the bar server's name is recorded as David, the name of the night barman whose ID Mr Andrade was temporarily using. Andrade stated that, as well as Lugavoy, he recognised Dmitry Kovtun as one of the three men, because he'd previously served them the day before. He did not recognise the third man, but he was certain that this third man was at the table when the drinks were ordered and when he inputted the order into the POS system. Andrade did not mention anyone else joining the Lugavoy party that afternoon and he stated that no one at the table asked him for an extra cup for tea. He said that he brought Lugavoy the bill to sign, however he did not see the party get up and leave the bar. Unlike the claims recorded by the British press back in 2007, in the statement he gave to the inquiry, Andrade said that there was nothing unusual about the behaviour of Lugavoy and the other two men at the table. In fact, he said they were very well behaved and he stated that, so far as he was aware, there was nothing unusual about the contents of the teapot. In fact, Andrade said that while he had cleared the table, it was his barman who had put the glasses, cups and teapot in the dishwasher, located in a small room behind the bar. Now, let's examine this account given by Andrade to the inquiry alongside the statements made by Litvinenko to British detectives. As we've heard, Litvinenko stated that when he arrived at the bar, there were already several glasses and cups, plus the teapot, on Lugavoy's table. He said that the little tea left in the pot was cool, which indicates that it had been brought to the table some time before he arrived. Therefore, if Litvinenko's account is correct, then he could not have been the other Russian man served by Andrade at the table. And there's no way Litvinenko could have come in, sat down, had an extra cup brought over to him, sat there for 15 minutes, and been introduced to Logovoy's family, all without Andrade noticing. Either Andrade's account is completely wrong, or Litvinenko's is. Which brings us back to the timeline. The CCTV footage submitted to the inquiry appears to show Lugavoy and Kovtun coming into the hotel just after 3.30pm. Another camera shows them in the foyer, walking towards the direction of the bar area around 3.35pm. We've already noted that someone who looks a lot like Litvinenko was caught on camera standing in the foyer between 3.57 and 3.59pm. If these recordings are correct, then that only leaves about 25 minutes between Lugovoy and Kovtun arriving at the hotel and Litvinenko getting there. Yet, according to Mr Andrade's account, Lugovoy came into the bar, ordered a cigar, left, came back about half an hour later, ordered tea, then a round of gin and tonics, and then another two drinks. And all this had to have happened before Litvinenko arrived because, according to Litvinenko, the cups and glasses and the near-empty teapot were all already on the table when he walked into the bar. Now, that doesn't add up, does it? 
let's look at the receipt from the bar. It shows that the cheque was opened at 4.33pm. Remember, Andrade stated that he opened the bar tab after he brought the drinks to Logovoy's table. That strongly indicates, to say the least, that Litvinenko could not have been in the bar of the Millennium Hotel at 4pm. In fact, the evidence given by Andrade, combined with the timestamp on the bar receipt, indicates that Litvinenko could only have arrived in the bar sometime after 4.30pm. Unless, unless we accept that Litvinenko's account of what happened in the bar was fundamentally wrong. It only kinda starts to make sense if we believe that Litvinenko was one of the three Russian men that Andrade said he served. That would mean we have to dismiss Litvinenko's statement that when he came in, there were dirty cups and glasses on the table. We have to dismiss his claim that an extra cup was brought over. We have to dismiss that the teapot was near empty and cold. We've already dismissed his account of the teapot being silver, and we don't really know what to do about the mysterious man named Vadim. If we junk all of that, then it's just possible that Litvinenko could have come into the bar at 4pm and sat down with Lugovoy and Kovtun and been served drinks by Mr Andrade. But that would mean that the three men were sitting drinking tea together. And if they were doing that, then how does Litvinenko consume a fatal dose of polonium without the other two getting sick? Andrade has retracted his story about poison being sprayed into the teapot, and yet polonium was identified by British investigators in the teapot. So, how did it get there? How could it, if Litvinenko is the third Russian sitting at the table? It's possible, but it becomes less likely, and it simply does not fit with the official narrative of what happened that afternoon. The whole thing is a puzzlement. Believe it or not, there is more mess and muddle as the day goes on. Further discrepancies with CCTV timestamps, cell phone records and other witness statements, including a statement from later that evening in the bar. The time that Lugovoy settled the bar tab doesn't line up with CCTV. There's a credit card payment that doesn't quite sync up. Ugh. Oh my goodness, I could go on for hours. But I won't. I think, at this juncture, we all get the drift. So, what do we know? I think it's fair to say that polonium was in play. Litvinenko, Kovtun and Rugovoy left a trail of this radioactive substance all over London. In the Millennium Hotel, everywhere that Kovtun and Rugovoy went, was virtually glowing with the stuff. This exposed them, and Lugovoy's family, to enormous risks. Perhaps they did not know what they were dealing with. Why were they handling polonium? For murder? Perhaps. Did Litvinenko, or British intelligence, or the private security firms know anything about the polonium? And what about the so-called nuclear weapons expert, Mario Scaramella? He's another part of all this. I suspect that Litvinenko's death had something to do with his work for British intelligence at this time. 
And, as with so much in this case, all of it somehow gravitates around the formidable personage of Boris Berezovsky. And yet, Berezovsky was never treated as a person of interest by British police or the statutory inquiry. Neither was Skaramella, the man initially fingered by Litvinenko as his likely assassin. So where does that leave us? Well, in a sense, it feels like we're back where we were three weeks ago. I've been mulling over this case for so long, it's been a bit of an obsession for the last month. I've run down so many permutations, trying to account for the incongruity of events. I've wondered if the timeline is out of order, or if there is an unaccounted for period in Litvinenko's day, perhaps associated with his intelligence work. I feel like I really should stop looking into this before my apartment starts to look like a scene from the movie A Beautiful Mind, with yarn strung all over the walls, linking facts and theories. But having done all this research, having looked at all this evidence, I can see that we do know some things we didn't know before. There's a ton of information in the findings of the inquiry. A lot of it is fascinating and seems to make sense. And a lot of it doesn't add up. As I mentioned before, I wasn't able to read through and fully scrutinise everything. I just couldn't do it all. And I don't feel too guilty about that. After all, it took the British government a decade and millions of pounds to come up with their findings. But even if I had the resources to go over every detail with a fine-tooth comb, there is still key evidence that has been redacted or is simply not available to the public. From the large amount of evidence that I have examined, especially about events on November 1st, it is shocking how much doesn't add up. Some of this might not be surprising. We know that CCTV timestamps are notoriously unreliable. It might be more worrying if every timestamp was correct. That said, it is not easy to tell which are right and which are wrong. We are assuming that the timestamp of the bar POS system is correct, but even that is up for debate. Same goes for conflicting testimony. With all this in mind, what we can say is that it would be impossible to look at all this evidence and make a clear judgement about what happened to Litvinenko. But that is what the inquiry did. It was selective in its use of evidence, and it appears to have been set up to come to a predetermined conclusion that Lugovoy and Kovtun deliberately murdered Litvinenko, probably on the orders of the Russian government or elements therein. And this might be the case. The point is, we are wading through some very murky waters, with hidden pitfalls, unseen currents, and a dearth of light to guide us. It should come as no surprise that such statutory inquiries have been condemned by lawyers, academics, judges, and human rights groups as a travesty of justice. I can sympathise with the opinion of the human rights organisation Amnesty International, it asked members of the British judiciary not to serve in such inquiries, which are, and I quote, controlled by the executive, which is empowered to block public scrutiny of state actions. 
Is there evidence that was redacted or not submitted to public scrutiny that supports the contention of the inquiry that it was the Russians who done it? Maybe. But we don't have access, so we cannot say. What I feel we can say is that the evidence made public does not support this being a cut and dried case. I think there's something missing. Something serious that might help to explain events, but not necessarily something that the powers that be wish to put into the public realm, for whatever reasons. Over the past three instalments of this case, we have encountered quite the cast of characters, all of whom were very, very dangerous, and any of whom seem quite capable of almost anything. I'll be honest, I wouldn't choose to have tea with any of them. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Assassinations Podcast. Wow, I can't believe we're at the end of Season 2. This season has been fascinating to make, and we really hope you enjoyed it. We'll be dark for the next two weeks, and then we'll be back to launch Season 3 of the show. Our first episode of Season 3 will look at the recent killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It's been a huge international story, with terrible repercussions not just for his family, but for the status of journalists as a profession. He was a Saudi citizen with US residency, he wrote for the Washington Post, and his death, seemingly at the hands of the Saudi government, has placed a strain on relations between the United States and the West more generally, and the Saudis. I think it's a really important case, and I'm really looking forward to delving into it. This episode was written by me, Neil Cooper. Craig Moore joined the team again to assist with research. Craig has a knack for digging up all sorts of records from various databases, and his research has been very helpful. Sound editing and design are by Lindsay Morse. Our theme music was created by Graham Ronald. You'll find us on Twitter, at AssassinsPod, where we tweet about current events and show-related updates. If you'd like to support the show, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast. To learn more about the people featured in today's episode, visit our website, assassinationspodcast.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thanks for joining us on this ride through the world of spies and espionage. We can't wait to see you again for our Season 3 launch. Until then, goodbye.